go, yes, we roll. Taste 360 degrees. High, high, 360 degrees. High, high, 306. 306. 360 degrees. High, high. Broadcasting live from Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, known to settlers as the East Bay Area, this is Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Wildfires pose a deadly threat to our forests and communities. Increasing intensity and impact of these fires is, in part, the result of our misunderstanding of fire. The documentary Wilder Than Wild reveals how fire suppression and climate change have exposed our forests and wildland urban landscapes to large, high-intensity wildfires, and it explores strategies to mitigate the impact of these fires. Tonight we'll hear excerpts from the film and speak with film producers Kevin White and Stephen Most. That's coming up on Full Circle. I'm your host, Mari Nakagawa. Keep it locked. We are now experiencing the fires of the future. That's a quote from Cal Fire Chief Ken Plimont, included in the award-winning documentary film Wilder Than Wild. Four years in the making, the film addresses questions pressing many Californians today. How do wildfires start? What's causing the intensification of wildfires? And most importantly, what can we do about it? Tonight, we're offering the documentary Wilder Than Wild for a pledge of $100 to your KPFA station. We're also offering film producer Stephen Most's books, books, stories that change, stories that make the world, excuse me. And you can get the package, the book and the film for a pledge of $200. The film and the book are, of course, just thank you gifts for your contribution to the station itself. Um, Any and every amount is appreciated. So the phone number to call, I'll give it out right now. It's 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Or you can donate securely online at kpfa.org. We're going to jump into our first excerpt from the film, Wilder Than Wild. And when we come back, we'll be joined by the film's producers, Kevin White and Stephen Most. So here is Wilder Than Wild. There's Hachachi and the Tuolumne, the river drainage. So you're actually flying over the rim fire, and as you look down, you can see where the crown of a lot of these trees were completely consumed by the fire. Riding with Yosemite's Chief of Fire and Aviation, Kelly Martin, I learned how forest conditions affect wildfires and what it was like to be on the front lines of the rim fire. We knew we were dealing with a very unique event when this fire grew roughly 50 to 70,000 acres in a day. I think at one point we probably had close to five or 6,000 people that were working on this fire, helicopters and air tankers. Firefighters from all over the nation were here to help us out.
very explosive situation to where there was nothing humanly possible that we could do except to make sure that people were out of the way and they were evacuated and they were safe. There's a number of different factors that come into play for a high intensity fire to develop. The weather factors when the rim fire started, again, peak of the fire season, very hot, very dry, windy, and an incredible amount of fuel buildup. I realized what I see as a dense forest. Kelly sees as fuel for a wildfire. But not all of the rim fire was destructive. In many areas, the fire had beneficial impact in a forest that has evolved with fire. So this is an area of the rim fire in which the fire actually came through here largely on the ground. These larger trees are adapted to the kind of low severity fire that burns along the surface, clearing out the competing vegetation, opening up seed beds for trees to become reestablished in. It's a real benefit to these systems and the type of fire that they evolved with for eons. This is an interesting example here where the fires really come through and really cleaned out the understory. It's consistent with the way fire used to burn in these stands historically. Don Muir has a, a great quote that people often cite that says, historically the Sierra forests were the kind that you could ride a horse through. Well, this is the kind of forest that you could easily ride a horse through. John Muir believed that the Sierra forests were wild and he wanted to preserve natural places like Yosemite from human impacts. Yet the mountain forests he encountered in the 19th century were frequently burned by California Indians. The meadows and open forests they maintained became overgrown when settlers removed the natives and their fires from the landscape. The landscape that we saw during those early encounters that we so value was not a purely wild landscape in the sense of being natural landscape. It was a cultural landscape. It was the result of the interaction of people with nature and perhaps most powerfully through fire. We used that capacity to see that the right kind of fire got on the landscape in the right way. And that kept wildfire, unwanted fire under control. Unlike John Muir, Gifford Pinchot saw the forest as a renewable resource that had to be conserved. In 1905, Pinchot founded the U.S. Forest Service to provide wood and water for a growing nation. Muir fought Pinchot over the fate of Hetch Hetchy Valley. Muir wanted it preserved as wilderness. Pinchot wanted it dammed to provide water and power for San Francisco. The valley became a reservoir. But in 1916, Muir's preservationist vision secured a federal home with the creation of the National Park Service. Certainly the Forest Service has a different mission than the Park Service. So we don't do timber harvesting, we don't do cattle grazing in Yosemite in the wilderness. So we have more of a flexibility to use fire on the landscape as it was meant to be 
a hundred years ago because we don't have the conflict that we often see with commodities. Sometimes, when the conditions are right, Kelly Martin lets the wildfires burn. So this is the southern edge of the middle fire. This is deep in Yosemite's wilderness. This was a lightning-caused fire that started you know, a couple months ago. It's behaved very well. It hasn't burned very fast. And a lot of this has just burned the surface fuels. So it's a very nice understory burn that really isn't burning it with very high intensity. But yet it's doing tremendous good by cleaning up a lot of this forest fuel on the floor. It's hard to help people understand, but I think the more folks like yourself that we get out here and really work with you to really see how good these, this fire is doing in this area, and you can see it, how else are you gonna reduce the fuels except through fire? So it's exciting for me to see how well this is actually burning because I really did not expect it to burn this well. That's why I think the middle fire is really one of my favorite fires this year. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm Mari Nakagawa. That was an excerpt from the documentary film Wilder Than Wild. And tonight we're offering the film for a pledge of $100. And joining us in studio to discuss are Stephen Most and Kevin White, co-producers of Wilder Than Wild. Stephen Most is an author, playwright, and filmmaker. He has writing credits on four Academy Award-nominated and five Emmy-winning documentaries. His 2017 book, Stories That Make the World, Reflections on Storytelling and the Art of do the Documentary, um, will also be offered tonight um, in conjunction with the film. And we're also joined by St uh, Kevin White. He's an Emmy Award-winning film uh, producer, director, and writer, founder of Full Frame Productions and Filmmakers Collaborative SF. Kevin has produced and directed dozens of films that have been screened at film festivals around the world. Thank you both for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting us. Our pleasure. Thank you. So, Wilder Than Wild uh, was screened a few months ago at the SF Green Film Festival, which was how I learned about it. And it's still, I believe, on the festival circuit, right? It's not yet available for purchase. Um, so we feel really fortunate to be able to offer it exclusively to our KPFA Full Circle listeners. And the phone number to dial is 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Or you can donate securely on kpfa.org. So we are now experiencing the fires of the future. Can you talk about the intensification of wildfires over the past decade or so? Well, when we began the film at the time of the Rim Fire in 2013-14, uh, that was the largest forest fire in California history. But uh, we realized, looking just at information, that the largest, 80% of the largest wildfires in the last 100 years had occurred in this century. Why is that? So the Rim Fire became our uh, poster child for the mega fire, for these larger, more destructive, more intense wildfires to try to figure out why this was going on. And during the four years that we made this film, we saw wildfires come out of the forests and do tremendous harm in residential areas. Um, the increase in destructiveness and extent of these uh, wildfires occurred faster than we anticipated. We never would have anticipated that, that we would be here in early 2019. Um, 
having spent a lot of time with wildfires, we saw their, you know, their destructive abilities, obviously, and but we also saw how wildfire did some really good things in in a lot of forest areas, particularly. But the power of a wildfire is not something you ever forget <laughs> when you see it close, and you know. Uh, we literally had a rough cut on October 8th of 2017. And uh, like many people, on October 9th, I woke up and smelled smoke. And that was the beginning of the wine country fires. And, you know, we immediately went up there and filmed and, and did all kinds of stuff to integrate that story into our film because it was really clear that all of these people living in the wildland urban areas really need to also rethink their relationship to wildfire and entire communities and not just not just in the forest but in the wildland urban areas you know throughout California can I mean, you define what that area is well typically it's an area where um, it's either woodlands or forest or you know kind of could be chaparral. I mean, mm. it's all kinds of different kinds of areas, but they're basically you're living in some kind of natural environment that is um, the kind of place a lot of people like to live. Yeah. You know, it's it tends to be beautiful, tends to be really lovely, and the kind of place that a lot of people want to live. So they have these great homes and they have these great big trees over their backyards. And guess what? That's a fire hazard when you start to have really high-intensity wildfires come through there. So, you know, yeah, I mean, there's estimates up to 40 million, 40 to 50 million people live in fire-prone wildland urban areas in the the, um, the United States. And a lot of our listeners, I'm sure. We learned an acronym making this film, WUI. <laughs> WUI, baby, do we have a problem? It, it stands for Wildland Urban Interface or... Wildland urban intermix if the housing is mixed in with with wildlands. And we don't really think of ourselves as being in the wooey, but um, think back to the tunnel fire of nineteen ninety one. You know, uh, fire came from the the uh, hills in the East Bay, and there have been fires uh, that have affected urban areas before. It's just that there's been such a buildup of population mm-hmm. that when they recur, as they did in Santa Rosa, on the imprint of a previous fire, I think in 1964, uh, it caused a tremendous amount of destruction, loss of life as well. So we have to start thinking not just about the houses in which we live, but the topography, the vegetation, and our communities, because it's in with our communities that we can be proactive in responding to the threat of catastrophic wildfire. And it's interesting that we, one of the reasons why people are moving increasingly into these interface areas is because of the beauty, but part of the beauty of nature is also how powerful it is, and how that part of living next to or with nature also comes with... Um, this um this this understanding that the film really brings out is a, an understanding of fire and of of nature and its power and communities now have a really a pretty important responsibility to address this both individual homeowners but also communities as a whole and the cautionary tale is oakland frankly the you know the tunnel of fire in oakland i mean you go back up there they've built more or less the same kind of homes, the same way. They still have small roads 
getting in and out of that. It's lovely up there. Lots of eucalyptus. I mean, it's really complicated. You know, you can't... The cautionary tale is that when we rebuild, we need to think about wildfire in that process. And that's that's a big part of both policy and planning and, and all kinds of other things that need to, you know, play into it. We need to think big about how our infrastructure has to change in a a state that's burning up. It's not just our road system having emergency vehicle access and evacuation ac- access. A lot of these fires are caused by elect- electrical mm-hmm. transmission lines. I, uh, most of the wine country wildfires were caused by PG&E lines, for example. But uh, and, and actually, these lines go back to the gold rush, the uh, hydrology of the gold rush uh, diverting those rivers Suddenly people realize, well, that's a source of power. It can turn generators. Well, that's an old history in California, but it has got to be the past very soon because uh, it's completely impractical to underground uh, those lines. It's also impractical to shut off the power if there's a heavy wind and a very hot, dry season. So we need to think about having uh, a lot more renewable energy and microgrids. There's going to be money coming in uh, from insurance companies, from probably uh, legal settlements. So let's think about how we can make uh, our infrastructure better and address climate change, which is one of the driving factors of these wildfires in doing so. Kevin, I see you nodding. That's the thing is that, you know, we have a warmer drier climate and you know the wine country fires happening we had you know five years of drought very wet winter a lot of flashy fuels that they call flashy fuels you know grass and all that kind of stuff and next thing you know we have a lot of fires that summer and you know a lot of people say well gosh we have all this rain and snow right now and actually it does a lot of vegetation is going to grow in the spring of it so I think a lot of firefighters are like gearing up, you know, because, um, you know, the other challenge of this is that there's no such thing as a fire season, you know, yeah. we have fires year round. And as a result, it, it you know, th- that puts a lot of tax, both economically and in terms of the, the workforce, the, the all the firefighters. So it's a, you know, we really need to rethink this. And I think, you know, Moving forward with a warmer, drier climate, we have to really factor that in uh, to be resilient, to develop resilience for the for the decades ahead. If you are just tuning in, we're in conversation with filmmakers Stephen Most and Kevin White. And if Kevin's voice sounds familiar, it's because he's the narrator of Wild and Wild, Wilder Than Wild, which we're hearing clips from tonight on Full Circle. This is 94.1 KPFA, and we are offering the film to listeners who donate $100 to this, your local independent media station. And if you don't have $100 on hand right now, you can spread the payments out $10 a month. And we're also offering Stephen's book, which we'll get into a little later. Um, And of course, any amount... is greatly appreciated. Um, Anything you feel you can afford to support KPFA. Um, So there's some really wonderful history contained in the film as well. Of course, I was aware of John Muir, um, but I'd never heard of Pincho, and he had a big impact on the California that we see today. Well, that's right. A lot of the uh, forested lands in California are national forest. Uh, 
And and Cal- places like California were very important in the formation of public lands, uh, which was a an invention in the 1880s. The idea was, in the in the 19th century, wood was was the oil. It was the major commodity, and forests were going down all over the continent uh, to provide housing, ties for railroads, and everything, and of course, fuel for for uh, trains and everything else. So. Uh, Pinchot and and others like Teddy Roosevelt realized that they had to conserve forests or there would be no forests. And uh, they anticipated, given the kind of uh, corporate capitalism that was uh, uh, occurring then, that all of those lands would be bought up. They were also concerned about water, monopolization of the sources of water in in mountains like the Sierra Nevada. So they, they felt a sense of urgency to make these public lands. I mean, I think the thing that's important to remember is that they were really trying to look at the resource and protecting the resource for future generations so that mm-hmm. they would have something, you know. And, you know, it's their mission f- for the Forest Service is different than the mission for the Park Service. And the Park Service is about wilderness mm-hmm. and, and and preserving wilderness. And, and the, the Forest Service is, you know, they have... A lot of different stakeholders, a lot of different folks. It's recreation, it's water, it's it's timber. And that's still true today. And that's a difficult mission, frankly. Yeah, and um, I think that one of the interesting things that falls between the cracks of those two, that ideological butting of heads, is the fact that, as uh, Stephen Pine in the in the film says, that you know what we see, many of us see now as a purely natural or wild landscape, is a cultural landscape or has been for indigenous communities in that it's not only, you know, it is possible for us to impact the land or interact with the land in a non-exploitative way and maybe trying to separate us from the land so starkly is also causing a lot of issues. Um, but I think we have to jump into another clip so we don't fall behind because I want to I play as much of the, the uh, film as we can. So here's another clip from Wilder Than Wild. Historically, the Forest Service has had a different relationship to wildfire than the Park Service. It saw wildfire as a threat to the timber it managed. Nineteen ten, five million acres or so burned on the national forest. Who knows how much nationally? Seventy-eight firefighters died. A huge trauma for the agency. By the 1930s, the Forest Service was practicing a fire suppression policy, calling for wildfires to be put out as soon as possible. The agency had declared war on wildfire. surplus material. All of our air tanker fleet essentially came out of military surplus after World War II and Korea. So all of it reinforces the sense that we really are in a war on fire. We've got a fire industrial complex. 
We've got a whole private industry that's devoted to firefighting, which is now creating lobbies. And yet we know we can't win. Fire is going to happen. There is no possibility of putting this issue aside, tabling it. It is coming at us. The icon of the Forest Service War on Fire is Smokey Bear. So remember, only you can prevent forest fires. For decades, we've had one of the most effective uh, advertising outreach uh, messages out there, one that the Forest Service is rightfully very proud of, Smokey Bear. Only you can prevent forest fires. It is a very emphatic message. The problem is we have a history of putting fires out, and we've come to understand, particularly over the last several decades, that many of these forests evolve with frequent low-intensity fire. Smokey has made millions of people careful about using fire in the forest. But he is also the public face of a century-old policy based on the idea that all forest fires are and should be prevented or suppressed. Only you can prevent forest fires. When they came out with Smokey Bear, he starved more bears out than he saved. Smoky Bear, because it took away a lot of the bear's food source. The huckleberries get choked out by these conifers that shade the huckleberry plant. Look, huckleberries are one of the main sources for our uh, bears. To learn about tribal fire management, I visited Tommy Wilson. He's a member of California's largest tribe, the Yurok's, who live in the Klamath River Basin. When I was a young man, there was a lot of grasslands in this valley here. They're all been overtooken by conifer because of the lack of traditional cultural fire. I had two brothers. My grandmother, she used to give us a book of matches apiece. She said, go up on a hill, burn that hillside off. And that kept our world in balance. And the cop told us either we're gonna have to stop this or they're gonna, they threatened us to throw us in jail. We got too much fuel on the ground that if we get a catastrophic fire in here, we're, we're in big trouble, we're in big trouble. having larger fires because we are reaping the benefits of removing fire from the landscape. And so we've now set ourselves up to have landscapes very continuous in fuels that when fires start 20 miles away, they literally can move all across that landscape in, in one burning period, one day. I went to the fire sciences lab in Missoula to find out how wildfire spreads. Where the Throughout human history, you're talking half a million years or something, people have been using fire. And yet, we really haven't understood how fire spreads. How does fire behave? Fire is like a liquid, loves. Every wildfire is a unique mix of fuel, 
heat, and weather. When it's windy, embers can travel for miles through forests or onto rooftops. This is how wildfires jump highways and take over entire landscapes. introduce fairly frequent burning, either prescribed burning or a more tolerant approach to managing natural ignitions that encourages the presence of fire that's not destructive, in fact is very constructive for the forest and, and much in line with the way these forests evolved for millennia before Europeans arrived here. Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. That was an excerpt from the documentary film Wilder Than Wild, Forests, Fire Forests, and the Future. Tonight we're offering the film to listeners for a $100 contribution. 100 bucks, and you can get the film, but really any amount is appreciated. And the phone number is 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-HEY-KPFA, or online at kpfa.org. And we're joined in studio by the producers of the film that we've been airing clips from, Stephen Most and Kevin White. So a war on fire and a fire industrial complex, I think these are terms that most Americans are not at all familiar with. How real is this war on fire that we're waging? The uh, budget of the Forest Service increased in uh, just a few years from 15% to, uh, the last I checked, 55%. This is, uh, this is billions of dollars every year, but uh, if money were spent adequately on prescribed fire and other preventive measures, that figure would go way down. So there are built-in incentives to maintain the war on fire. There are fleets of aircraft. There, there are fire suppressants. Uh, there's a lot of equipment. We, we saw a warehouse full of parachutes. There are people who are making money providing these to the war on fire. And there, of course, they have favorite members of Congress who are on the right committees that fund the Forest Service. So there's a split between the Forest Service policymakers who maintain the war on fire uh, for their own budgetary uh, purposes and the scientists who are saying that this is folly, that you're making the situation worse by suppressing fire. The forests are becoming too crowded and fires spread uh, great distances as a result. I think that the, uh, in fairness, the most of the leadership of both the Park Service certainly and the Forest Service and BLM and the state parks, they all realize that we need to have more uh, what we call prescribed burning on mm -hmm. the ground. And there's a lot of other tools in our toolkit to to um, mitigate the impact of wildfire. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of them are trying to do a lot of plans to develop that. And what it takes is a concerted effort among all of these folks, all of these resource agencies, and education to the public. So the public is going to realize maybe we need to live with smoke a little bit but they're doing a prescribed burn. It's a lot better than having two weeks of her hellacious smoke that really, you know, takes out the whole Bay Area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think this is this. These are the kinds of conversations we need to have moving forward. Do these agencies also acknowledge the impact of climate change? <laughs> they do. Uh, however, uh, 
our friends in the Forest Service aren't allowed to use that term. Wow. In fact, none of the federal agencies are allowed to use that term. But, of course, I think everybody realizes that that we're living in a warmer, drier climate, and this is impacting the way we are doing everything in terms of conservation and, uh, you know, resource management moving forward. So we have to do it anyway, independent if we can't, aren't allowed to talk about it. You were talking about um, the conversations that communities really start to have to, really start to, really need to start having. <laughs> there we go. And um, I think a lot of the the news and, and just... Um, the peripheral information we were getting about the fires that were so close by, um, the effect was pretty paralyzing. And um, what I found really invaluable about this film was that it expands the conversation. So we're not just talking about the individual choices each person, each family can make to prepare for the fire, which is still important, but we're actually interrogating our whole relationship with fire and how our policies and our practices and beliefs really have to change. Our values have to change, as Kelly Martin says. Our values about fire have to change. We have to rethink it. And that was what's been motivating us for, for four or five years now. And we really like, I mean, your point about communities talking about it is super important because we like to show the film or people get the film and then they can show it in their neighborhood and have a conversation about it and then maybe get a firefighter to come in and talk or get get somebody else who has some experience with this to come and talk. And we've had, I don't know, maybe 150, 200 community screenings all over the place, not just California, but also, um, I don't know, Colorado and Nevada and Oregon. and, And in the West, this is on everyone's mind because these last, this last year particularly, I think we all got the memo that mm-hmm. it's not going away. And um, you mentioned a little bit about um, the the release of smoke as a concern. Um, how do, of course, out here everybody was buying the, the N95 masks and was really concerned about the air quality. Um, how do the different park services, fire departments, people who advocate for controlled burning address that concern? Well, they have to get permission to do a prescribed burn or even to let a a wildland fire that was naturally caused keep on burning, which, of course, burns up the fuels. They want to do that if it doesn't threaten structures. So there are air quality boards around the state, and uh, often they're locally controlled. So... uh, the public has to realize that it's it's in their benefit to ha- allow these fires to burn or to allow prescribed fires to take place because, as Kelly Martin says, there's an art and a science to prescribe fire. And uh, one chooses the right time of year when it's less likely to get out of hand, uh, the right wind conditions, the, the topography that is safest. Um, so this is something that the public has to realize is, is in our benefit. I should say that one of the people in the film, uh, a hero of mine is Mary Nichols, who's the head of, uh, air quality board in California. Um, and she's very much aware of the value of these prescribed burns. She says, this is the kind of fire that won't take people to the hospital. Mm -hmm. If you allow these major fires to get out of hand, that is really destructive to public health. The air quality control boards really do need to work with all the resource agencies trying to get more 
um, you know, prescribed burns done and completed. And it's complicated because a lot of smoke sits in the valley and a lot of people, you know, asthma rates are off the chart. So, uh, in fact, during the heavy smoke, my son, 19, one of my sons, one of our sons got an asthma attack, which he hadn't had since he was three. And he was not the only one. So I think everybody with hair that was in the smoke, you know, has stories like that. And I think one of the big themes of the film is that wildfires affect all of us, whether we realize it or not. It's important for all of us to think about this. It's easy to be in a city and think, oh, that's just mm-hmm. somewhere else. No. It's not. It's all of us. And of course, that that smoke that was coming into the city and, and affecting people was from the biggest fire in California history. So definitely the scale is, compared to the, the concerns, is, is just totally different. Um, so again, we're speaking with Stephen Most and Kevin White. They're directors of the film Wilder Than Wild, which we are offering tonight to KPFA listeners for a pledge of $100. The phone number is 1-800-439-5732. 1-800-KPFA. Hey, KPFA. And we're also offering Stephen your book. Um, can you tell our listeners about Stories That Make the World? Stories Make the World is about the fact that all of us are storytellers. Telling stories is part of our identity. It's also part of how we understand the world. Uh, but also we're uh, subjected to a barrage of stories all the time, and uh, even more so in our time than ever before. Uh, there are so many spigots, so many channels, so many uh, social media opportunities to hear stories, and everyone is trying to convince us their stories are true. So one of the themes of the book is here from the perspective of, of a documentary filmmaker. If we investigate a subject like wildfires, how do we figure out What's really the case? Mm -hmm. Because often there are polarized opinions about wildfire, just as there are about so many other things. So there's this whole process of uh, creating an enlarged understanding, of figuring out which facts are really the facts, of talking to the people who are the most reliable sources, and then trying to find a way to put it together in a story so that people will, will want to learn about this. That's uh, that's the journey that uh, Kevin and I and many other filmmakers take. And uh, many of the chapters in the book are about that on different subjects, including Wilder Than Wild. And I think as a, as a, um, a consumer of media documentaries, it's extremely helpful to understand the angle that the people telling the stories are taking and how easily, depending on what's included, what's omitted, even if it it aligns with your ideology, it makes sense, there's something missing that somebody had made a a decision to leave out. And I found it really helpful to to understand that and be able to watch your film and then read the book and see like, oh, this is what was behind the scenes. Um, But we're going to jump into other clip and I'm going to drop the phone number one more time. It's 1-800-439-5732, 1-800-KPFA. And you can get um, Stephen's book, Stories That Make the World, and the film Wild and Wild for a pledge of $200. Or you can check out all of the gifts that we're offering online at kpfa.org. So let's get back into the film. This is Wilder Than Wild. victim of climate change and they're also contributing to global emissions 
Our latest research shows that forests globally are as big a source of greenhouse gas emissions as transportation worldwide. Now, why is that? It's because of deforestation and forest fires. More than 100 bushfires have swept through Australia's New South Wales, forcing thousands to leave their homes. Both Spain and Portugal have been susceptible to warm, dry conditions that enables these fires to spread so rapidly. Chile's 2,500 firemen are insufficient. More than 100 active fires are still spreading from central to southern Chile, fanned by a prolonged drought and extreme summer heat. We are losing forests at a rate which is causing them to be a contributor to the problem of global warming. Our forests are now on track to lose more carbon than they store. That will accelerate climate change and affect our lives with more extreme weather. California has set itself ambitious goals for reducing our carbon footprint and at the same time our forests are burning up. They are getting in the way of our ability to achieve those goals. Every time we have a big fire it sets us back. So it's a cycle and it's a bad cycle that we're in right now. Forests should be renewable but with climate change and all the other stuff that's going with it, we could see a large-scale conversion of that forest. In effect, the equivalent over a relatively short period of time of going in and clearing it. For me, Forests are deeply restorative, yet I find myself fearing for their future and wondering how they can be restored. The fact is that our forests are tremendous assets to us because they are a huge part of holding water in our major watersheds. And of course they provide oxygen for the planet as a whole. If we can get people to sit down and say, you know, these forests have been here for a lot longer than we've been here, but what are they going to look like in another 100, 200, 500 years? What do we want uh, to have by way of forests for our children and grandchildren to be able to enjoy and for other creatures that we share the planet with? really important that we try to find some way to get past the debates that currently seem to have everybody kind of frozen in place and to develop some consensus about what we think we need in the way of healthy functioning forests. Everyone here who has a fire background will look and see this is fuel loading. Just Confronted with complex, large-scale problems, it's easy to feel hopeless. But there are solutions, and often they come from local communities with a shared purpose. The Rim Fire brought our community together. What our community's done in response to this catastrophe is really try to find ways to agree on 
what do we do next short term, what do we do in the long term to protect our forests. So what we've done is formed a group called Yosemite Stanislaw Solutions, YSS. And this group is a great cross-section of our community. The, the Farm Bureau's in it, several environmental groups, including the Sierra Club, the Audubon Society, the Tuolumne River Trust. And we have the timber industry in it, fishing games in there. So we have this great cross-section of folks looking at what's wrong in our forests. How could we, from the local community, find areas of consensus, share that with the Forest Service, and somehow build solutions that would be the least controversial? And that's what we've tried to achieve here locally. YSS gained Forest Service support for a pilot project to manage 5,000 acres per year in the Stanislaus National Forest with the goal of restoring forest health. This is the kind of area that our YSS group is trying to build consensus for. An area that has the large trees protected, that has some areas where we've thinned out and created openings. A healthy forest that provides for diversity, but also has reduced the risk of wildfires, insect infestation, and some of the other threats. What was our issue yesterday, probably? Fuel was wet, fuel wouldn't burn, it was super shady. So the piece of ground we looked at... After generations of fire suppression, the Yurok tribe revived the tradition of cultural burning. And they're not doing it alone. It is awesome that Cal Fire is coming alongside of the Yurok tribe and coming in to restore our lands. We need, we need help. We can't do it ourselves. We're trying to put fire on the ground and make it safe. Our community identified fire as the number one most important thing to have in our community because there was so much brush. We were at risk of just being burned out. Burning had been outlawed. Um, it was my grandmother's generation that if you were caught setting a fire, they would shoot you. We have been waiting with bated breath for Cal Fire to come on board. And so it's really nice to see that we're merging our culture and our community along with the outside, you know, agencies. If you look anywhere around you, the earth is smothered out, suffocating. So if we cannot clear that and help the earth breathe, we're all going to suffer. It feels really good. My heart has been singing for the last three days because I'm going to be able to get down in here next year and gather. I gather traditional foods, acorns, huckleberries, excuse me, mosquitoes. <laughs> The wildlife is coming back to the land because there's things for them to eat. The use of fire in tribal communities, I think, is really starting to open the eyes of people nationwide about the potential use of fire to bring back balanced ecosystems and a preventative tool for wildfire.
Excerpts from the documentary film Wilder Than Wild, Fire, Forests, and the Future. You're tuned to Full Circle, 94.1 FM KPFA. I'm your host, Mari Nakagawa. Tonight, we're offering the film as a thank you gift to listeners who donate to the station. You can go online to check out all of our gifts. It's kpfa.org. If you'd like the film, um, it's a pledge of $100 or 10 monthly installments of $10. Um, The phone number is 415... Sorry. That's my phone number. <laughs> the phone number is, I, I, I memorized the KPFA one, but now if I'm just go back to my memory banks, mine comes out. It's 1-800-439-5732 or 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And laughing along with me in studio are film producers Stephen Most and Kevin White. Thanks so much for joining us, you guys. Thank you so much, Mari. Yeah, and so um, in the climate justice movement that's, been happening in this country and around the world, indigenous people have really emerged as leaders, and this film gave another example of that. I mean, the Yurok tribe had a lot of, they had some money to spend on their community, and they chose to do a cultural fire, and and then Cal Fire came in to help them which we actually had a conversation with Ken Pimlot, who was the former director of CAL FIRE. He was thrilled to be able to do that. So that's a really nice development. I mean, Margot and um, Elizabeth, who are the, they call themselves fire lighters. And they go around, they do a lot of training and stuff. And they are just... You heard them in the film. yeah, Yeah. And they're just remarkable women and who are, you know, organizing all that. So... The tribe realized that they needed fire on the ground and that it would open up the, you know, the help help the forest breathe. So we can take a lesson from that. There's a chapter about the uh, Klamath River tribes in, in my book. Uh, and I have another book, River Renewal. I find that the uh, tribes of the Klamath Basin here in California are really inspiring. They have an ethos that an anthropologist called world renewal. The Karuk term is Pikiawish, fixing the world. Mm. And uh, cultural fire is part of fixing the world. It restores the forest. It uh, makes it more habitable. It brings back the wildlife, as as uh, uh, Margot and, and Elizabeth were saying. Uh, but it, it's a lot deeper than that. It has to do with uh, restoring the sta- salmon streams after the uh, winter so so that fish can spawn. And this whole ethos of fixing the world is something that I think we all can learn from. There are many things we can do. And it wasn't just a purely selfless thing that they were doing, as they said. I mean, not only are they protecting their community from these mega fires, but Elizabeth gathers food. She gathers traditional foods. And so what I, I think I took this from your book, but um, you talked about how the the knowledge of, I think it's the ecological knowledge of just the knowledge of um, how integral the fire is in the ecosystem is a traditional knowledge that's still very present in a lot of indigenous communities. They know how we can do better by the land. Um, So you mentioned earlier that folks can organize community screenings of the film. How can listeners bring uh, Wilder Than Wild to their community? Well, if they pledge here at KPFA, they can, get a, they can get a DVD or a digital link or, a, or a, I guess, a, a Blu-ray. And we also have a screening kit. 
And so a screening kit, we have customizable posters, customizable flyers, discussion guides, screening tips, all the kinds of things that they need to have their own screening. And we find that community screenings are the, you know, there's something about the, the impact of shared viewing, shared viewing, shared experience, and then the discussion afterwards. And we've had some really meaningful and thoughtful conversations after, after screening the film. And they can get very pragmatic too. They can talk about, you know, what's, what do, what, you know, what do we do if there is a wildfire that comes through here? What do we need to be thinking about? So, um, there's a lot of information online to, for all of us to, to, to learn about in our local communities. But I think when you get people together to have that shared experience, it can really help uh, propel it. I'm wondering, um, you both are familiar with the station. You've both been on our airwaves before. As um, media makers and independent filmmakers, why do you think that it would be so important for people to support KPFA? KPFA has been a, uh, an independent voice in the Bay Area for a long time. And it's uh, covering stories that are ignored by the mainstream media. Uh, and, and one example is that th- this year is the 50th anniversary of the Alcatraz occupation by the uh, Indians of all lands. Uh, KPFA was the voice that publicized what was going on. People took boats to bring supplies to the warriors at, at Alcatraz, and uh, it really created a, a, a network of, of support for a, an event that really was part of the revival of Native culture. And I think when we see the traditional knowledge of fire coming back, that's, I, I think KPFA is partly responsible for our understanding the importance of that and for the kind of support that people are giving Native people at, at Standing Rock and many other places today. And when you think about community radio stations, I mean, really, honestly, what's at the top of the list? (laughs) KPFA. It's been building community and creating community through radio and, you know, really diligent reporting, but also bringing the community into the station and and training so many people and giving them their start, you know, Uh, and that's just, you know, remarkable. That kind of thing is what I believe community radio should be about, and this is the place for that. Yeah, I mean, everyone working on this show, myself, we've got Stevie G at the board, our director, Frank Sterling, Kay, and Aria, our tech assistants, we were all trained here as part of the apprenticeship program. Um, We've been here for, some of us, two years. Um, We took classes, we learned all the skills that takes to produce this show and now we've had the reins of it my my apprenticeship group for a year now so yeah i went from being a listener to being on air um so it's it's like a really beautiful wonderful experience and it was free for me i mean apart from my time um but it's it's incredibly hard to fund these kind of um this ship and i know steven you're talking before about how the funding for your film was so difficult and you know at the time it felt like nobody when you started wanted to hear about or there wasn't funding for a film about fires that's right uh, wildfires in the woods who cares uh and so uh documentary filmmakers often find that something is important that other people don't recognize that they need to know about so we were doing this uh in 2014 
we were sort of lost in the woods without a lot of support. We were able to pay everyone else. And uh, it was really until <laughs> the wine country wildfires that all of a sudden people are saying, people who had rejected us in <laughs> uh, the grant proposals we made say, well, why don't you apply again? And there was there was one funder I called because we had to go back into production to cover the, those wine country wildfires. I said... Yeah, I hate to go back to you, but we really need your support. She said, I evacuated my house yesterday. Wow. And uh, she gave a house party for us that enabled us to keep on going and cover that story. So again, we've been speaking with Stephen Most and Kevin White. Their film, Wilder Than Wild, is available to our listeners online at kpfa.org. You can also call 1-800-439-5732. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Um, just about. Am I right, Steve? <laughs> On the board, I'm like <laughs> waiting for the cue, but I think we're just about getting there. Um, you've been listening to Full Circle. Our executive producer is Ms. M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. I've been your host, Mari Nakagawa. A special thanks to Stevie G on the soundboard, our tech assistants, Aria and Kay, and our guests, Stephen and Kevin. I hope everyone can check out Wilder Than Wild. Thanks for hanging out with us on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next. Thank you.